Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Ryan Pohl, the author of Aquaman and the War Against Oceans. Ryan, thanks for being here with me today. Rebecca, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here to speak with you in person. We're doing this digitally, but it's sort of in person. So could you talk a little bit about why you wanted to, how this book came about? Like why Aquaman? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I mean, I, I have my PhD in English and I've always been interested in the intersection of like literature and politics. And I have been teaching, I teach at Northeastern Illinois University, which is a tremendous public university in Northern Chicago, uh, just a lot of non-traditional students. Um, I just started to teach more and more popular culture courses. Um, and I also started to become a staff writer for the uh, magazine Pop Matters. And I became more and more interested in the ways you could use or think about Pop Matters to talk about larger social and political discourses from ecology, critical race theory, gender studies, uh, politics. So ultimately, I got interested in Aquaman almost with sort of like a fluke. And I learned so much from my students. We were talking about superheroes. And then we started like thinking about Aquaman. Um, and all my students says, like, he's the worst superhero. No one likes Aquaman. And I just started thinking about that allegorically. What does it mean that this figure who was central to the Justice League, um, represents the global ocean. Um, and what does it mean that in our cultural moment for the past few decades, he's been seen as this like figure of ridicule? Um, and how do we think about that allegorically, but how, to how the global oceans are treated? So I thought about a project, um, I didn't have faith I could do it, of using the figure of Aquaman as an icon of, of, of the global oceans and think about ecological justice, especially as it pertains to what's happened to the oceans over the course of... Um, modernity or global capitalism. So in Aquaman has, like you said, has been a part of the Justice League. He has sort of this long history. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit, just put Aquaman in context, but then you don't look at all of Aquaman's history. I mean, you do a little, but you're really focused on this new reboot of Aquaman and this DC reboot. So if you can kind of talk about the history of Aquaman and then um, where you kind of really come in and look at Aquaman. Yeah. So 
Um, one of the reasons I mostly focus on the new 52 reboot, which began in 2011, is because of this corporate initiative of DC, right? There's always been rebrands and reboots of Marvel and DC, but in 2011, DC did like the, like the, the biggest reboot. They were going to reboot their entire uh, 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 universe. Um, and I was interested because the executives of DC at the time said they wanted this reboot to expand their market share and to explicitly create a more diverse um, more diverse, more modern, more engaged line of superheroes. So it's that moment I wanted to go back to. Again, I, I read a lot allegorically. Is what does it mean to think about this movement moment that not just Aquaman, but Batman, Superman, everyone is being reimagined? Then how does that reimagined Aquaman, in my case, speak back to and engage with its past histories? Um, and uh, and, and again, if I could just say one of the things that also I became really interested in and I knew I really wanted to focus on it is because of two also central characters in the Aquaman universe, not just Aquaman, this icon, this figure that's fighting for to create this world where the ocean and land are united. They're seen as as one and not just seen as separate. Right. But also Black Manta, one of the few African-American really figures in the DC universe and one of the few African-American supervillains and this incredibly racist history, which he's represented. And I was curious in detailing in this reboot, how do you do justice to this racist history? And again, this reboot both tries to redress that racist history and it reproduces some of that uh, uh, racial history. And the other figure I was really interested in is Mera, who's um, uh, Aquaman's partner at times and really thinking about her as this figure of, of ecofeminism. So I knew this was a way to think about the history of the global oceans, think about race, think about gender, thinking about capitalism. Um, I just gave a lot of answers. <laughs> really specific. But again, just to sort of encapsulate, I guess, is how this moment of rebooting both tries to face and redress its past and tries to create a new future, which does link directly to the Jason Momoa movie, which maybe we'll talk about. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. And you sort of got into, you know, how you kind of thought about and divided the book, right? Thinking about sort of the feminism, thinking about the ocean and justice and white supremacy. Um, and, and also I thought it was really interesting as in the book, how you were talking really about how um, – this idea that, you know, Aquaman, nobody does, no, Aquaman's sort of this joke, right? Often in popular culture, I, I laugh because I totally remember in, um, you know, everybody who, you know, wanting to dress up, nobody wants to be Aquaman, right? Like that kind of idea. Um, but that this is similar to how we think about the oceans, right? And how we think about this vast majority of space on our planet, and we kind of ignore. So can you talk a bit about that and how you um, see Aquaman representing these space and how we kind of talk about oceans and um, these that space in in our country and world? Yeah, th yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that question. Thank you for all the questions. <laughs> yeah, right. That's how. I, um, so I begin the book thinking about this, this sort of discourse, and detailing all the ways in popular culture, especially in the 21st century, that Aquaman is posited as a joke and a laughingstock. Right, from the Big Bang Theory to SpongeBob, Family Guy, over and over. Family uh, Aquaman is a figure you laugh at that no one wants to dress up as. And again, as, as you as you as you articulated. Um, I read that sort of allegorically is how we treat the oceans, right? Again, Aquaman is this explicit figure as the protector of the oceans. 
in the way that modernity in its dominant form is, constitu- is it's constituted by disavowing the oceans, right? We're so committed to a territorial way of framing our sense of reality and knowledge, right? So much is mediated by the nation state. But one of the, the narratives I track throughout the book is, right, the story of modernity is very much the story of the ocean. Um, and as I say in the introduction, and I'm pulling from a lot of ocean scholars, right, um, you could say that the history of the ocean is enabled by two ships, the first being the slave ship, right? And I want to, again, really taking seriously the ocean is the space of, of, of anti-Black racism, and the second ship being the container ship, right? So it's the story of, of capitalism and global capitalism, first with 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 the story of racialized slavery, but also enabling enabling our world of commodities. The oceans have become this like vast highway. And as many scholars of the oceans say, the ocean has become the sort of forgotten space. We don't study the oceans as much as we should, even in the humanities. Again, there are some classes that do, but we don't have enough courses thinking about right literature and the oceans, movies in the oceans, but how much the oceans and what happens in the oceans enables our everyday world. And conversely, the way we treat it, um, the oceans are dying right now. And that's the other story I'm, I'm, I'm tracing and giving this history between plastic pollution, acidification, uh, climate change. The oceans are becoming a vast and deep graveyard. And we don't study that narrative enough. It's at the center of what's called the Anthropocene, of like the sixth great extinction. So to use Aquaman to tell all these intertwined and inextricably related stories are so important because, again, like... By turning the ocean, we we open up these intertwined histories that help link all these stories of racial capitalism, of 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 uh, envi- of ecological destruction, of capitalism's destruction of ecologies. Right, and so you start, or, or one of the things you look at is this the trench, right, and sort of the monsters, and how we often think of the ocean as monsters, and how we treat, um, and how the trench and the ocean is sort of treated and looked at in Aquaman and in the series. So, can you talk a little bit about the trench and that sort of narrative arc that you saw in Aquaman? Yeah, and maybe I should say before I get into the trench, what I look at the New 52 is the three-year run that Je- with Jeff Johns was the sole author, working with three primary artists who are all Latinx, which is really important for my analysis too, Evan Reyes, uh, Radres, um, uh, uh, and uh, Joe Prado. Totally had a moment for a moment, all from Brazil. But but anyway, in, in this first narrative arc about the trench um, is – the trench, and this was in the movie Aquaman, if you remember, it's a really James Wan filmed it. This horror, this horror movement, horror like scene of like these monsters coming to the surface and attacking. And this is how the New Fifty Two reboot begins. In the trench, again, the allegorical significance, the name of these so-called monsters is synonymous with their home ecology. So this is the bottom of the oceans, and the trench are these deep. Um, they're, they're as deep as like they're, they're like these mountains, like going the opposite way in the oceans. So already, it, Jeff Johns has said that he wanted to create the New Fifty Two as this ecological allegory. So anyway, so what the, what the surface world sees as these monsters coming to attack the surface in the trench, which, as you said, Rebecca, is like uh, seems to be participating um, in reproducing this trope of like the dangerous ocean, like of of, of Jaws, right, and piranhas attacking. But what Aquaman, the figure, learns in the course of this narrative arc is that they're not monsters, but rather they're coming to the surface because their home ecology is being destroyed by human activities. So right away, the series is engaging in a type of allegorical thinking, the way that we need to 
take seriously the ocean and study the ocean and make connections between activities in the land and what's happening in the ocean. And I really love the first narrative arc because you see this tension, these two ways of knowing. Uh, from the surface world, um, you see this like, kind of military-industrial response that the trench have to be destroyed and shoot into the ocean and destroy everything. And Aquaman almost becomes a detective saying, no, they're a living species. They're, they're, there's, they're a community. We have to think about why are they coming to the surface. Um, and at the end of that narrative arc, there's this beautiful sort of moment. I mean, I think it's really beautiful of the, the human world celebrating because the trench had been ostensibly destroyed. And Aquaman's mourning. You see him sort of being traumatized, saying, sorry, like, I wish I didn't have to do this. Um, and he's like, almost like he's refusing to be that sort of hero that the world, the surface world wants him to be. And instead becoming what I want to suggest is a type of ecological hero that's thinking about holistic narratives. Um, and even though he's forced to contain the trench, he realizes it's wrong to do it. So again, this really complex allegory that develops that's both critiquing and making us think about the allegory of monsters. And as I develop in this chapter, this idea of labeling beings as monsters is of course a strategy of humans to not just think about animals, but about humans that are deemed outside the project of humanities, such as African-Americans, other colonized uh, beings. So I try to track the racialization of monsters as well in that chapter. So we look at this ocean and we look at the trench in this way of them being mo- this monstrous space. And so you kind of read those that opening images. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you read the comic and the opening pages yeah, of the so comic? One of the um, methods I use in this book is following Frederick Jameson and others, of following a theory of allegory. And, and Frederick Jameson details that... Um, complex allegories open up multiple meanings and is the most political form of reading, which he details as um, he calls allegoresis, not to get too technical about it. But the point is we shouldn't always just be faithful to a text, but sometimes it's important to read allegorically that's breaking from a text. So for example, the trench begins with looking at the trench, but the, 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 the text reads at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And one of the things I do is like almost like I stay at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. The comic is interested in following the trench, but also trying to contextualize the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean as a graveyard for, um, for African bodies that were thrown overboard during the Middle Passage, right? So again, this sort of, I tr- try to develop this reading practice that how could we learn to politicize these comics in ways that the writer didn't intend, but that, again, the, just the way that we learn to, have to learn to read the oceans, we have to learn to read um, the different geographies within the oceans in ways that are attentive to the histories of, of capitalism and racism. So again, a, a putting the trench tank at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean is a way for me to talk about theories of the Black Atlantic, the work of, of Glissant, looking at the poetry of Derek Walcott. Um, and one of the things that um, at least I enjoyed in writing and putting it together is the unexpected directions the book goes into while focusing on these characters, but also opening up this space to allow maybe unexpected dialogues to happen between different theories. Yeah. No. And I have to say in some ways it was very depressing reading parts of your book, right? Because there were like thinking about like the, the, you mentioned it earlier, but thinking about like waste and plastics and, and, and the ways in which we will um, soon have more plastic than species and, and, and animals in the ocean, right. Or living creatures in the ocean. And and also the ways in which we've created laws um, 
above the water that are very different than those laws that are um, that play out in the water and, and, and stopping some of the death and stopping some of the destruction we do in the oceans is yeah. not a priority. Yeah, Rebecca, and I think that's such an important, like, thank you for bringing that up because it's such an important point for me that like, again, you're reading about Aquaman, but it also, I hope becomes an accessible way to think about the history of the oceans. And again, like, even these sort of facts that, well, by 2050, the United Nations says we have more plastic than fish. But to detail that history, how did we become so addicted to plastics? But in a kind of a, a brief, encapsulated way. So, again, I hope like people leave not just depressed, but thank you for that, Blur. A depressing book. <laughs> also, sort of like the history book that people can use it to, to like learn about the oceans. So, but. <laughs> It was the book was not depressing. It was, <laughs> but yes, but it's hot, right? Like you know, it. There was one point where you were talking about um, <laughs> get totally off track, but um, some of the laws that we have about net dragging, right? And and how thinking, like I never. It was like. Oh, like, because you talked about what if we did net dragging above the water, right? We, we allow net dragging to happen and we allow these things to happen. Um, but if we did that above the water, what does that really mean? Like all the species, all the animals, all everything that you're sweeping up with, uh, that you don't yeah. want, right? Yeah. Um, and that gets away like how we view the, the oceans, right? Because the land, like some species have like, I guess the luck to be cute and cuddly and fish being reptiles and they can't make eye contact, don't have that sort of charismatic species connotation. So this kind of the overfishing and the sort of the technologies of fishing that have developed again, which they detail are, are scary and depressing. Right. And again, like just the pollution, like all our garbage and not all of it, but most of it ends up in the oceans and like the kind of fertilizers we use to treat our lawns and golf courses and our public spaces. Those that that runoff is leading to the oceans, creating these giant um, garbage patches. And like, again, that sort of, we keep the knowledge of the oceans, like it's offshore, both literally and epistemologically. I don't know if that word came out correctly. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got, right. So you see, looking at the oceans, you're looking at this sort of monsters. Do you also bring in Mira and think about feminism and think about sort of how these texts, um, sort of those allegories and how you read the feminist reading. And so can you talk a little bit about her, um, how she is, she's not aqua woman, right? Like she is, she is a real full fledged person in and of herself, but there's also some, um, complications and complexities in how she's presented. Yeah, so and Jeff Johns is given credit for, and he's a very controversial figure. And maybe we will get to that. It is, 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 is very problematic around race or race, but he was given credit for, he made Mara, which was again, uh, Aquaman's intimate partner into almost an equal, right? As part of the Justice League, she's as important as Aquaman. And you could sort of see this as like a victory for gender, right? In terms of representation. Um, but again, thinking like about this chapter, this happened before the whole controversy with Amber Heard, um, right? And again, I think this book is is thinking about that logic, even though Amber Heard didn't come up. But I really, I think it was really important for me to, at least this is sort of reading allegorically, to think about Mara as this figure of ecofeminism. And I really wanted to uh, focus on select moments, especially in New 52, when Mara faces uh, this world of patriarchy, which is kind of baked into the everyday. Um, 
So at the beginning of, of the New 52, I think, I think it's really interesting that uh, Aquaman and Mera decide they want to disavow the relationship with the ocean. They want to pass as human. Um, and it's really interesting to think of what that means. Like part of it to means to be human means you disavow the ocean. You want nothing to do with the ocean. And Mera agrees. And Mera's storyline, and I really focus on one issue or select issues to really foreground this, Um what it means to pass as human, she's thinking about, it's like at first it's a space where it's like you create your own private bubble in your home and you have this heterosexual coupling and you'll have a dog and a baby and you'll be happy. But every time she's in human public spaces, she encounters this world of patriarchy, which begins with the naming that the public discourse insists on calling her Aquaman. She says, that's not my name. It's Mara. She doesn't want to be derivative of Aquaman. But I really focus on this 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 one uh, issue of where Mara is just getting dog food and she sees a store employee being sexually harassed by the store manager. And start to read that scene and other scenes about how the world depicted in the New 52 shows that the kingdom of humanity is a kingdom of patriarchy. And Mara, in becoming a superhero, realizes that one of the monsters she's facing is this monstrous order of patriarchy. And again, I didn't get into Amber Heard just because this I finished the book before this all began, but like I think this sort of leads perfectly to thinking about Amber Heard because again, no matter how complex the cases, they were both victims in some ways. But the way that Amber Heard is like just villainized in public discourses and not having a voice, in so many ways, this is what Merrick goes through in uh, in Jeff Johns's run. Um, so again, I really want to think about her as this allegory of ecofeminism, and, and again, try to use her story to think about that. So many. Um, marine biologists and, and, and people working and studying the oceans are women. There's this really interesting history, really, really briefly, especially during the Cold War, where space was gendered as this masculine space of adventure. And right, it was really this like realm of, of, of spectacle. But so many women um, studied the ocean because it was a disavowed space again, right? So I think about the stories of Rachel Carson, Sylvia Earle. There's so many amazing um, women marine biologists, women that study the ocean, um, uh, which is just a really incredible. And again, I think that's, again, this is something interesting to think about. This disavowed space has also become, because it's disavowed, has become a space that's more open to women studying it. So I try to uh, at, uh, at least delineate that history and get there through reading Mara as this allegory of eco-feminism. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. 
And you kind of used us too to talk about the larger context of women in comics and women in the comics industry and kind of pushing against um, DC and calling out DC for their um, staffing or lack of women staffing. And we see this often. And so, um, and this continues to come up. So I appreciate that too, because it's so important to think about women who women read comics, women create comics, women are active in this space, and it's not seen often. So could you talk a little bit about that, too, and yeah, why that so was thank important? You for that. I keep on saying thank you for your question. Thank you for all your... I got to, um, yeah, in the middle of the chapter, I, I sort of break away from that, from the comic and reading about the sort of patriarchy that Mira faces to think about the larger patriarchy that was informing DC and Marvel, but again, focusing on New 52. And this is another reason I wanted to focus on New 52 and the way to critique the comic industries. So again, it's sort of it's 2011, New 52 wants to reboot their entire series and they're going to have 52 issues running simultaneously, right? So many a creative um creative um creative workers are going to be hired and what's amazing is that of the 52 titles only two are penned by women and it's the same woman pending uh the, the same one and i get into sort of the hiring practices of dc and marvel and again it's not just the sexism on the page and i do detail the visualization of women their hypersexualization on the sort of and i bring in all these feminist critiques but I also try to, um, I don't try to, I make this claim that as important as representation is, it also matters as much, if not more, as who is doing the representation. And the fact that um, the preponderance of the editors, the preponderance of the writers are men perpetuates this sort of patriarchal stories. And I really, I love this tension and I detail this story, the political activism of fans, because Rebecca, as you said, a lot of girls and women are fans, right? They're fans of all genders, sexualities, races, ethnicities, but sometimes uh, not um, both. I think it's a problem in the, the sort of the dominant culture to think about comics as being a, a male space, which is not true. But there is the material cultural history that institutionally it's dominated by men. But especially around the New 52, this surge of girls and women critiquing the corporation um, and start uh, interrupting what DC was trying to do at Comic-Cons, saying like, what about your representation? Why are there no women authors? Why are there no women artists? And there's this amazing moment that one of the editors, Don Don Didio, erupts at this woman that's interrupted, saying like, there are no women to hire. Name one, name one. And all these women gathered together and like listed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women that could have been hired that DC didn't even like reach out to. And that's like the height of the sort of like that of both patriarchy and that sort of like the privilege of being of the masculine privilege of like not even to know, right. Or the sort of epistemology that makes you think I don't have need to know, but there's this, I try to make it at the center of this chapter. Again, you like thinking about Mara, but all these, uh, these women fans who challenged DC and, and in some ways won that challenge. They apologized and, and, um, and made a more concerted effort to hire more uh, women creators. Still a lot of patriarchy in the industry, but like this sort of, again, this sort of politics from below, which manifested itself because of fan participation and pushback on, on digital sites and in person is just a tremendous empowering story. Not so depressing. <laughs> 
uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, DC keeps uh, apo- keeps having to apologize. Right. For, <laughs> um, yes, the late, yeah, we won't get into the well, latest with the not, Flash. Is and, not a linear narrative, right? <laughs> yes, but like at least we can mm-hmm. keep pushing at him, right? And so, so we've talked a bit about this already, but you, you know, so you go from feminism and then you go into kind of that. Um, allegory looking at atlantis and our war with the surface world and so we've talked a bit about that but are there other things that you want to add to um looking at the politics of this kind of war between the oceans and atlantis and and this that you know these fully fledged spaces and um and the yes, surface. very quickly. So this is my third chapter. This is sort of the central allegory of this run is that literally the ocean attacks the surface. And I just, I love this allegory. This is what first like initially attracted me to, to, to really focusing on the new 52. Um, as I, as I, I love this articulation, it's, it's it, it, in the series Orm is like the ruler of the ocean. It's not Arthur Aquaman, but anyways, but Orm says like the surface world has been attacking us for centuries They've been polluting our waters. Uh, they've been, they've, you know, they've, they've just fired. They've done testing in the waters. They overfish. And what I love about this tension is what the, what, what the citizens of the ocean recognize as a war from the surface is ignored. And I love that epistemic tension. So I try to sort of detail these different epistemologies, but also different conceptions of violence, right? Again, from the surface world, we could say what's happening in the ocean is a type of, of slow violence, right? It's happening slowly that acidification is happening and plastic pollution. But as sort of as, as visualized and narrated in this comic from within the ocean, it's not slow violence. It's a spectacle of violence. And I'm really interested in how the artists try to play with that tension, that aesthetics between slow and spectacles of violence. And maybe just one final thing, this final allegory I'm trying to uh, develop is that one of the, the, the projects of Atlantis, the sort of the central kingdom of, of Arthur, is to be recognized as a nation state because that's how humans understand justice. It's mediated through nation. So the sort of project of recognizing the ocean as a nation, which is as much rights, dignities, and respect, and the ability to declare war as any other nation. So there's some really interesting allegories, I think, happening there. And and so then you look at, and you mentioned this earlier, but um, I'd love to talk a bit more about that, the allegories of white supremacy. So Black Manta, the Black Atlantic, and, and what you're really trying to look at and do with this move and, and eventually getting us to Jason Momoa and right and, and what right. is going on with Aquaman so, with um, that. <laughs> there's this, I mean... I do think Seth Jones is in many ways, like he's very problematic and he needs to be called out in many ways, but he's also, I think, a really uh, a generative and interesting writer. And one of the things he does when he concludes his writing is try to create this, or create this allegory of white supremacy. So basically, is it the, the journey, because it's like begins with Arthur realizing he needs to be protector of the ocean. And he becomes Aquaman, and becoming Aquaman, he learns about the past of how his kingdom of Atlantis. And to be really brief, basically, um, he was told that the founder, um, that the, the, the founder of 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 Atlan believed in an isolationist ocean and wanted nothing to do with other species. That it was isolationist. It sounds a lot a lot like Trump's rhetoric, but basically, what he learns is that the that the supposedly founder of Atlantis, being isolationist and contained, is called the Great Lie. And I, I 
bring in Plato's Republic and thinking about the great lie. But basically, Atlant was really a ruler that believed in hospitality and diversity, that other species can live in Atlantis. But there was a fascist coup to overthrow him and create a new origins, being like, no, we should be contained and homogenous. So basically, Arthur learns that the history of Atlantis is the history of fascism, and that his great-great-grandfather was actually a fascist, right? So it really calls into question so much. But again, I raise this question, if, if Jeff Johns is aware of race and racism and white supremacy, what does he do with the figure of Black Manta? And very quickly, the history of Black Manta, uh, in one sense, it's representation. You have an African-American supervillain that has superpowers. But again, the one issue that to me that's just so important is in uh, the late 70s. I think it's in 1977. So for his first decade of existence, Black Manta was always like fully armored. You never saw his face. But in the seminal issue in 1977, he removed his mask and you see he's African-American. You're like, oh my God. And he said, like, that's why I'm called Black Manta. Um, I'm African-American. And my goal is not just because I want to like defeat Aquaman because I hate Aquaman, but I'm trying to build an underwater kingdom to be the space of black autonomy. And he becomes this figure of like, he's like a black Marcus Garvey or to think about the Black Panthers. I mean, it's just this amazing moment. But in that same issue, Black Manta commits what might be the worst crime in DC history. He kills Aquaman and Mera's baby this moment of infanticide. So at this moment of political possibility, you see DC being racist. There's no other way to say it, right? That the blackness, this moment where you think, think about black matters, a figure of black revolution, he's also figured that blackness becomes the figure of, of terror, of violence, right? Um, so what does Jeff Johns do with that narrative of black manta? If he's really interested in creating a modern diverse um, Aquaman world, how do you redress that past and give Black Manta more interiority? And he doesn't. It's such an interesting contradiction to think about white supremacy. In one sense, the narrative is a critique of white supremacy, but Black Manta remains this this like evil incarnate. And the things he does in this series are just, it just keeps on reinforcing that he has no interiority, no dimension. So again, the sort of tensions of well-meaning white liberals still perpetuating um, anti-black um, racism. I mean, if I could say just sort of like one final thing, and we'll, we'll get to Jason Momoa. And this is where like, I think it's really important to sort of another allegory I develop is that the writer gets so much privilege, Jeff Johns. But what is if we privilege the artist as much as the writer and recognizing that so many of the key artists on this are, are Latinx? And to read this as a Latinx text and think about how the art maybe is pushing back to some of the writing. And so much of the history of DC and Marvel is enabled because of Latino and Latina artistic creators and trying to think about this alternative way to read comics, to really take seriously who is the writer, who's the artists, what are they doing different to push back against the, the, the writing? So you have two, this conflict happening at the site of creation. So we get, right, so we're, you're thinking about the text and the comics, and you also then um, bring in Jason Momoa and bring in Aquaman as, um, in, as DC's move into the films and movies and sort of that DC, the DC uh, cinematic universe. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that, Aquaman in the cinematic universe and the importance of Jason Momoa as you see him in in these allegories of white supremacy and racism and how he kind of plays and pushes yeah, and, against and, and, that. So I conclude the book thinking about a lot about the movie, but also about different iterations of Aquaman since the New 52. When I'm really interested, I try to make the book 
even though it's depressing, as Rebecca reminded me, and it is depressing in a lot of ways. The history of colonial capitalism and racial capitalism is de- and patriarchy is depressing. Uh, it should be. But trying to be uh, ending on, on a chapter of hope because there's amazing cultural creators doing amazing things and really figuring the oceans as a space, a space as a black space, a brown space, a queer space, and an indigenous space. So I look at all and a feminist space. And I look at all these other creators that since the New 52 have taken up the mantle of Aquaman to really make it this radical space. And one of the most conspicuous is James Wan's, James Wan's movie. And, and first I take seriously, what does James Wan do as a Chinese, Malaysian, Australian filmmaker? Jeff Johns is one of the co-writers, but so is James Wan. And I think he does a lot of interesting things. And the casting of Jason Momoa, who is proudly indigenous. Um, and I really, um, Jason Momoa as a water activist and the way he brings that to his role and his kind of what he contributed and how he, he, he crafts his performance to think about the indigeneity of the ocean. Um, and I look at some fans, um, there's this, uh, two fans in particular uh, writing in Hawaii saying that Jason Momoa is a, a, a Hapa hero, a superhero. He's the first indigenous superhero. And they cried watching it um, and thinking about what's going to happen with Aquaman too, but looking at other sites, uh, um, the, the first um, – woman um, writer. I look at the first woman of, of, of Aquaman, um, uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Brandon Thomas, who's the first African-American writer of Aquaman who happened afterwards. Um, you brought me the ocean, this great queer iteration of Aquaman. So I look at, again, the kind of progressive developments since then and try to like use these as sort of stories that could propel us forward to Far from being Aquaman being a joke, he should be at the center of our cultural attention, right? And I think it's so telling that the Aquaman movie is the highest grossing movie in in the DC cinematic universe, right? This is a moment, and I hope DC both recognizes and continues to give us more diverse ways to think about uh, Aquaman. So what do you think, like... You've been worried, like you know. You say you talk about this, like this hopeful future with Aquaman, and and what do you think? Do you think the comics are going to reflect um, some of what you're talking about? Where do you see Aquaman headed? Um, and if it's going to be headed, is he going to be headed in a different direction with the cinematic universe than he is in the comics? Yeah, or? So, um... I, I am amazing at predicting the future, so I'm really glad you asked me this. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot yeah, or anything, but it's just I think, at least for myself, to remind myself. I try to remind my students is that progress is never linear, right? There are breaks, right? And I think what's so interesting about comics as an expanded universe across multiple media is there's going to be regressive iterations, but again, those progressive ones is where we need. I think should both celebrate and support. And, uh, and and help disseminate. But um, I think Jason Momoa is really at the center of it. Again, DC, at least at their cinematic universe, there's two new uh, people at the head. And I hope, like, and I think Jason Momoa is such a draw, and I know he's taking much more of an effort to write the second one and making it more of an environmental allegory. And I hope that continues to shape what's happening in comic books. And, and by the way, one, one of the things which we, we didn't get to uh, I think some of the most exciting developments of Aquaman is happening um, on the animated television show um, Young Justice, where Aquaman's a black queer character, right? I don't, uh, the, I don't know if that's going to be renewed, but again, to to recognize there's all these incredible waves, these progressive waves, both to think about how diverse the ocean is from a human perspective, again, in terms of race, gender, 
sexuality, ethnicity, but also to tell the ocean story. So um, again, popular culture is an ideological battlefield. There's going to be just to kind of, then there's a lot of readers that are really conservative and racist and sexist. And I'm sure DC is going to want to get their market share to appeal to them. But um, again, I hope this book could be a small drop in sort of the conversation is remembering that all our superheroes, as much as there are corporate properties, they also belong to the fans, right? And our pushback matters. And uh, and again, I just love the idea of having more diverse, having more indigenous Aquaman and African-American Aquaman and, and Aqua women is created by different women figures to tell the ocean stories and to remind us what a diverse, important space it is for having a more socially just future for humans and for non-humans. So I will ask you my final question that I always ask because we've been talking about Aquaman in the book for a while. Um, is there anything either with this book or that you're, or other things that you're working on you one last, any last plugs you want to put out there or what you're working on right now or anything with Aquaman and the war against oceans? So um, I, 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 I continue to like, I still want to like follow Aquaman. And, and, and I'm not leaving it behind, but my new book project, which I'm currently working on, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a year, but I'm really excited about it as I'm looking at um, the story of American soils and how the soils support different political imaginations. So trying to decenter it, both tracing how it's become this ecology of whiteness and white supremacy, but also thinking about the healthiest soils or the most diverse soils, both um, in terms of its biodiversity, but also its cultural diversity and thinking about just different African-American and indigenous and Asian-American stories within the soils. And what does it mean to think about the United States from the ground up and not just from the surface, the ground up, but even further below. So I'm looking at a different ecology to tell really the story of the United States States from a maybe a surprising perspective from way underground. <laughs> That being in Illinois, um, in a space where people talk about the soil often and the importance of the soil, that's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and again, that's not just the soil, like the importance of the soil for like produce and profit, right? For the stories that are there, and like, sorry, like, I know we were getting off, but like, we need to think about it because it's like, as science, soil scientists are telling us, because of our, our our practices, our capitalist practices, we have less than sixty harvests left. We can't continue to treat the soil the way we do to have a sustainable future. And how does like studying the stories in the soil give us alternatives to having a healthier future and a healthier relationship to the past? Well, Ryan, it's been wonderful talking to you again, Ryan Pohl, who's the author of Aquaman and the War Against Oceans. Thanks for talking with me for new books and popular culture. Rebecca, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.